Thanks, Andrew. Music has the power to move us, right? And uh, it puts us in a place where we're ready to hear the good news of the gospel, I hope, today. I've called this uh, the sufficiency of the cross. Christ at the center is the theme for our Colossians sermon series. We'll be focusing on 2, 13 through 15, but I want to read 6 through 15 because I think we have to have the context to understand what Paul's arguing for here. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Colossians chapter 2, verse 6 or you can follow on the screens. Let me read this for us. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands, Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the power of God, who raised him from the dead. And our passage for today, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The word of the Lord. Spirit of God, we pray that you would open our hearts and minds to the truth of your word, that you would shine the glory of Christ before us. Make us doers of the word as you reveal your will and your heart to us. We yield ourselves to you this morning. Amen. It's not working. Have you ever said that about your faith or thought that about your faith? It's not working. I bet you can think of a time when your faith in God was not doing what you might have hoped. It wasn't doing what you expected it would do. Maybe it's even now. Maybe you're not happy with your relationship with your spouse or another relationship or you're not satisfied with your work or the way your work 
dominates your life, or your children aren't responding to the training you're giving them. Maybe you feel that your life is on autopilot, that there's no mission, there's no purpose. Your faith in Jesus sometimes just doesn't seem to be making a real difference in your life. Maybe you feel an emptiness inside that you just need to be filled. You're not alone. Everyone experiences moments or seasons of this kind of emptiness where we doubt that Jesus is really enough to fill up the voids in our life. Whether he's really enough to satisfy our desires and the needs that we have. We doubt that he can enrich and inform every stage and every aspect of life. We doubt that he can actually fill our lives with purpose and meaning. And there's a real temptation to search for that purpose and meaning and satisfaction in trivial and foolish, false, and even reckless pursuits. Chapter 2 of Paul's letter to the Colossians deals with that risk of turning to other sources to find the answers other sources to find the meaning and the satisfaction and the assurance that everything is going to be okay. So I began reading in verse 6 today because that helps set that stage. Paul encourages his readers to continue to live in Christ. Continue to live in Christ, strengthened in the faith as you were taught. He warns them about getting sidetracked through this hollow and deceptive philosophies, which I take to mean worldly teachings, practices maybe, that promise to fill those voids in our lives. Things that offer to add something to life with Jesus. I think Joel called it Jesus and when he preached last time around. Jesus and something else. Jesus and moralism. Jesus and a good reputation in front of my neighbors. Jesus and the right political worldview. Jesus and alcohol to dull the pain. Jesus and a loaded retirement portfolio. Verses 9 to 15 in this passage are then Paul's justification for living and trusting fully in the sufficiency of Christ, of Jesus alone, for salvation and for satisfaction. The first section of that, which Joel covered in 9 through 12, seemed to focus on Jesus' divine nature and the fullness of our in-Christ identification with Jesus. And today's passage is the second part of that argument. And it centers on the sufficiency of the work of Christ on the cross. And together, these two pieces form the basis for resisting all other salvations. 
If you grasp these truths deeply in your heart, you will not fall for the deceptive philosophies that call for trusting Jesus and something else. So the simple, straightforward message that I want you to hear today is that God wants you to trust that your salvation in Jesus Christ is full and complete and totally sufficient. Now, what makes it full and complete and totally sufficient? There's three things in this passage that we'll see. God made us alive in regeneration. God forgave all our sins and canceled the record of debt against us. And God delivers us from the powers of evil. So God makes us alive in regeneration. To begin, we need to understand that our condition prior to new life from God is one of death. Verse 13 clearly states that we were spiritually dead to God in our sins and the uncircumcision of our flesh. These two expressions are are parallel and they help explain one another. To be uncircumcised here is to be alienated from God. It's to be under the influence of sin and of the world. Passages like Deuteronomy 30 and Jeremiah 4 portray the true Israelite as one in covenantal relationship with God whose heart has been cut away from unbelief, who's set apart to God. And that's what Paul is getting at in verse 11 when he talks about believers being circumcised with a circumcision done not by human hands, right? The circumcision done not by human hands is a circumcision of the heart, a setting apart to God. And thus, the uncircumcision of your flesh in this text represents that natural fallen state of humanity where the heart is dominated by sin and self and the powers of evil in the world. So we might paraphrase verse 13 like this. And though you were dead in your sins and alienated from God, nevertheless, God made you alive together with Christ. So I had, a, I had a conversation with a friend last week. This guy was raised in the Mormon church, and he's an atheist now, but when we talked about what might happen if he's wrong, if someday he has to give an account to God for his life, he told me that he'd like to think God would recognize that he had done his best that he had made mostly good decisions according to his moral compass. Now, according to the Bible, that's not going to happen. He's dead in his trespasses and in the uncircumcision of his flesh. He's dead in his alienation from God before he even starts to count on his moral choices. Just like everyone else who remains regenerate, there's only one way to life, and that is the new birth through regeneration in Jesus Christ. Now, to be made alive by God is to be regenerated 
or born again. This is entirely the work of God. Dead people can't give themselves new life. But God, in regeneration, does give us a new kind of life, a resurrection kind of life. Paul says in verse 12 that we are raised with him through faith in the power of God, who raised him from the dead. Because Christ was raised from the dead and believers are in union with him, they also are resurrected or made alive with him into this new resurrection life. That is extraordinarily good news. You who were dead have been made alive in Christ. Now, regeneration for us is the beginning of that new creation life, which will one day be fulfilled when believers receive new creation bodies and live in a new creation cosmos or world. That's why Paul says in chapter 3 that our life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, appears, we also will be revealed with him in glory. Now, is that something that, that you can grasp, that you, that you can truly believe, that you are hidden, your life is hidden with Christ in God, and that you also will be revealed with him in glory when he appears in the proper time. God wants you to trust that your salvation in Jesus Christ is full and complete and sufficient, totally sufficient, including the fact that he's regenerated you into new birth, into an eternal resurrection life. The second great truth comes right at the end of verse 13 and goes through 14. And that is that God forgave us all our sins at the cross. This new resurrection life of the believer is intimately tied to an event in history. The death of Jesus Christ on the cross in Jerusalem, somewhere around AD 33, is a necessary condition for our regeneration. In verse 14, Paul illustrates the nature of that forgiveness using a familiar and, and pretty vivid image. The word that we translate written code really refers to an IOU, right? It's a note signed by a debtor acknowledging his obligation to pay that debt. You might compare it to a mortgage note, a big debt, right? But this note represents the enormous moral debt that all humans acknowledge before God as the creator and the Lord. As Paul points out in Romans chapters 1 and 2, Jews who had the advantage of God's law and Gentiles who were without the written law but recognize the call of the law on their conscience, all alike are guilty of the same willful disobedience toward their creator. Both groups failed to meet that basic obligation to do what is right before God. 
They fail in that basic obligation to honor him as the maker and the king. So my friend, who hopes that God will recognize his good deeds, has another barrier to righteousness before God. First, he's by nature spiritually dead and alienated from God. And second, he carries an ever-growing burden of legal indebtedness to God. From a long record of willful disobedience to God and his conscience. Rather than justifying him, his record condemns him. And every human being shares that same burden until God deals with it. And so, what does God do with this record of our guilt? That's what Paul gets to here in verse 14. We dwell in a world where every offense must be righted or paid for in some way. The cost must be paid either by the one committing the offense or absorbed by the one offended. Otherwise, we will live forever in a world where things are not made right. And that can't be because God promises to make all things right. It's embedded in his very nature to be just. So God deals with the consequences of our moral debt by absorbing the penalty for sin and the death of his son Jesus, the Messiah. Shockingly, the guilty parties who are responsible for the debt are not nailed to the cross with a list of charges. Instead, only Christ is nailed to the cross with the list of our charges in our place, taking the penalty for our sin upon himself and absorbing and effectively canceling that debt. I think it's a useful thought experiment to imagine how you might feel about your sins when you pass through death and rise to life in the new creation. Because this truth that our sins are canceled is something that we sometimes have a hard time grasping. We carry around the guilt of our sins long after Christ has forgiven us in many cases. So I believe what you will experience in heaven is that you will remember your earthly life, including your sins. But your experience of those sins will not include the shame, the regret, the self-loathing, or the depression that accompanies them too often in our lives now. Instead, your experience of the love of God will overwhelm any impulse to self-condemnation. And so the thought experiment is this. If we plan to spend a condemnation-free eternity with God 
including no self-condemnation for our sins, why not start now? We've started eternal life now if we are born into this new resurrection kind of life. Why wait until then to stop experiencing condemnation? What holds us back? See, God wants us to trust that our salvation in Christ is full and complete and sufficient, including that our sins are fully forgiven. And Paul shows us a third feature of salvation in verse 15, where he shows that we are delivered from the powers and authorities of evil. You see, what happened at the cross was a collision of heaven and earth, and it affected the deepest realities of creation. It's about far more than our individual sin burdens. But as the work of Jesus on the cross blessed humanity, it simultaneously crushed and shamed the powers and authorities of this world and the spiritual forces of darkness. So you might remember Colossians 1.13, in which Paul celebrates that the Colossians have been, as he says, rescued from the dominion of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Note the connection there, too, of the forgiveness of sins and the rescue from the dominion of darkness. What's the link? It seems that somehow God-forgiving sins releases the dominant hold of the powers of evil over human beings. Now, on the surface, the events that led to Calvary looked pretty straightforward, right? Pilate, who represents the lordship of Caesar, and the Jewish religious authorities were both threatened by this unprecedented display of personal spiritual power and authority in Jesus. His very existence, the very existence and life of Jesus threatened their sovereignty. Jesus accepted the title of Lord. He didn't dispute that he was the king of the Jews. He announced the arrival of the kingdom of God. So, the authorities stripped him, beat him, shamed him, marched him outside the city, and crucified him. And when they crucified him, they nailed to the cross this charge against him, the king of the Jews. And as he hung on the cross, they mocked him and looked on in triumph. And yet Paul, here in verse 15, claims that these very events produced the exact opposite outcome. He claims that precisely the reverse occurred. In another translation, it reads, he has stripped the sovereignties and the ruling forces and paraded them in public behind him in his triumphal, possession, uh, triumphal procession. This rendering kind of, it preserved that image of the Roman triumph parade in which the defeated enemy prisoners, naked, chained, and shamed, were marched into the city, powerless, 
many prepared for execution. You see, the powers and the authorities here refers to both the earthly powers and the heavenly powers. Both are in mind here, Caesar and Satan. The Bible asserts that behind the authority of every Caesar opposed to Christ is the influence of the dark powers. So their apparently triumph, triumphal stripping, shaming, and slaying of Jesus was ironically the very basis of their own stripping, shaming, and ultimate demise. That's what Paul's saying. That what happened at Calvary was that God triumphed over all the spiritual forces of evil, over every earthly power, over even death itself, and the death and resurrection of Jesus. So what does that mean? Well, several things. Hebrews 2.14 tells us that Jesus, by his death, destroyed him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and freed all those whose lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. So one of the powers of the evil one is to put us in fear of dying. But death has lost its sting, right? You need not fear death. Satan can do his worst, and you remain safe in the arms of Christ. Ephesians 6 talks about the armor of God at our disposal to resist the devil and endure his schemes to destroy us. We know that the ultimate victory is ours in Christ, even if we must suffer in the battle now. James 4 says that we have the power to resist the devil, that in Christ we can resist the devil and he will flee. But the application that I find most compelling right now comes from Revelation 12.10, which reads, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. The primary power available to the evil one has always been to rightly accuse human beings of disloyalty to God. And the penalty for that treasonous disloyalty is death. Jesus, in bearing the guilt of your sin on the cross, eliminated the basis for that accusation against you. The charge for our legal indebtedness has been canceled. It's taken away. It's removed. That's why Romans 8.1 reads, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And 8.33 reads, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? 
If you trust that your sins are permanently forgiven and the records erased and you confess and repent each time you fall into sin, the evil one cannot cripple you with guilt and condemnation. The demonic world is simply stripped of that power to condemn you. God wants you to trust that your salvation is full and complete and totally sufficient, including that he delivered us from the powers of evil. So like the Colossian church, we're often told in our day that to live well, we need more of something else in our life. The gospel of Jesus is good as far as it goes, but it's not enough to fill that relentless void in your soul, that restlessness. We need Jesus and. And the messages say, sure, listen to Jesus, but pay attention to your karma. Or make sure your image, your online image looks good. Or focus on those finances. Make sure you get those right. Or improve that sex life. You can do it this way. Or supercharge your career. Follow your passion. Not that all those things are bad things, right? They're just not the central thing. Human beings are desiring creatures. We want to find satisfaction. We want to find joy. Emptiness inside hurts, right? It hurts us. And we want to fill up those holes with whatever seems to promise relief or satisfaction. It's easy to get off track, to make other things, even good things, the center of our lives. But we've all seen the analogy or heard the analogy that a ship that sails off course just a few degrees, over the course of its journey, can be hundreds and hundreds of miles off course, can end up in some far distant place, far from the intended destination. Paul pleads with his readers to recognize that the fullness of Christ is their own fullness, and to keep Jesus and him alone at the very center of their lives. God wants you to daily trust the riches of the good news, that your salvation in Jesus Christ is complete and totally sufficient in regeneration to a resurrection life, in the complete forgiveness and cancellation of the record of sins, and in deliverance from the powers of evil. Amen? Amen. Father in heaven, give us grace to live this way. Give us grace, we pray, to remember and believe, to trust you with our whole hearts. Give us grace.
to walk with you at the very center of our lives. We pray in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.